to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and if you're tuning in for the first time, ask yourself this. Do you think most modern discussions about music lack a certain fire and perspective? Also, are you tired of getting your music knowledge from writers with big words and noses raised who can't feel a tenth of how that shit hits you square in the gut? Also, are you kind of a crazy completist type son of a bitch like me? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, then welcome home. Please join our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. We're on Instagram and Twitter too, but the Facebook group really is home. Home of artists, writers, filmmakers, musicians, you name it. Overall, a melting pot of unbelievably talented sons of bitches. It's good times stretching for miles in every direction. My recommendation, if you like what you hear, is to join the group and then join up on the rest of the platforms too. Then, pretty please, rate the podcast five stars, along with a beautifully worded review, especially if you're on Apple or Spotify. It'll help a lot. On whatever platform you do call home, you'll be privy to a never-ending flow of ongoing bonus content, giveaways, free swag, and encouraging words of wisdom on how to never, ever give up on your rock and roll dreams of maintaining a Lester Bangs-like perspective deep into adulthood. And if you're like me and enough's just never enough, then you may have just stepped in shit, my friends. Visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. I'm not going to mince words here. Our Patreon feed is the last word in deep dive music obsession. There are multiple tiers available at $5, 10 20 and $30 a month through which to gain entry to the psychedelically mind-melting music funhouse of Discograffiti's Patreon. Find the most expensive one that's right for you so we can keep this thing owned and operated by us and for us. Even at a measly $5 a month, where you simply realize the value of this show and appreciate the insane amount of work that goes into each episode. Soon we're only going to be offering our more recent episodes free of charge. At $5, you'll have access to the entire thing. At $10, $20, $30, $40, you get more. There's a lot more. You go on to patreon.com slash discograffiti and find out all about it. Okay, back to the free shit. Don't forget, the link to our legendary playlist is in the show notes and also on our website at discograffiti.com. This is an invaluable resource if, like me, you just hate listening to shitty songs. Lastly, but not leastly, a heartfelt discography thanks goes out to Joe Gravino and my wife and son, Jen and Mason, without whose invaluable help on the show, I would be entirely dead in the water. I seriously can't thank you enough. I care too much about this show to be entirely easy to deal with, so also I'm sorry. Okay, back to business. First things first, you guys need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography's heavily researched, and the music's always reassessed with fresh ears. We're not just covering albums, uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and bootlegs. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between 0 and 5, which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. In this episode of Discograffiti, or I should say, in this series of episodes of Discograffiti, we'll be turning our spray cans on Marvin Gaye. Psst. Supper Club Smoothie, 
turned fallen angel snorting toot off a hooker's tuchus. <clears throat> no guest on this episode, but tune in for part two and three to hear the venerable and legendary David Ritz, uh, the author of uh, Marvin Gaye's book, Divided Soul, and also the co-writer of Sexual Healing, uh, to trip the light fantastica with us. For this uh, particular uh, this particular episode, it's just going to be the first 10 years of his career, um, and it's just going to be me. Okay, let me paint a picture for you. Uh, I actually attempted to bang out this episode um, several days ago on my very last day of work at a job I have uh, been frequenting, I should say, for six years. I have hated this job the last year and a half, and every day has been uh, a terrible experience for me personally, uh, and I quit. So what I did was, because I'm a licensed hearing instrument specialist, is I, uh, before I cleaned all my stuff out and got out of Dodge um, on Friday afternoon, I jammed myself into the very cramped sound booth where I typically test my patients before I fit them with hearing aids and uh, attempted to do this episode. The problem is my voice was completely thrashed and ravaged. I do want to talk about the history of this episode. It's had a very twisty and turny sort of uh, uh, story behind it. So David Ritz really wanted to kind of come on and talk about um, you know, from 1970 on, he initially just wanted to talk about several key albums in particular. But, um, you know, what I wanted to, to get with somebody who was familiar with this phase of Marvin's career, not just the singles like Hitchhike, Stubborn Kind of Fellow, etc., but, you know, you know, really knowing all the records, it was a, kind of a tough one. I first I, I attempted to to pull down El DeBarge, uh, that was uh, I didn't get any response there. Then I spoke with Jerome Benton from the Time. He initially seemed interested. Then he tried to hook me up with a uh, a lead singer of The Temptations. Initially, I was really interested of, in the idea, but the problem was for me, he wanted to hook me up with a very latter era. Uh, Temptation lead singer, uh, the work of which I wasn't even familiar because it was late 70s, early 80s. So I passed on that, and that is when my path fortuitously crossed with uh, Eve Jarvis. At least it seemed fortuitous at the time. Uh, Eve is a very, very talented new artist on the scene, um, bedroom pop recording artist uh, with Marvin Sulfur crooning moves, and I thought that that was going to be the ticket. It didn't seem to come together, and that is when things got weird. David Ritz, who's going to be the guest next week and the week following for Marvin Gaye Parts 2 and 3, uh, actually pitched Janet Jackson to be the guest on this episode. I was practically holding my breath during the several hours that she was reviewing this as a possibility. She unfortunately turned it down, and that is when I had just had to say, okay, look, you can't top that as a prospect, so I'm just going to handle it all by my lonesome the very first time that that's ever happened, and I'm excited about it as well. I got your back, Marvin. Don't you worry about it. So as far as what Marvin means to me, I've always loved Marvin. I never was an obsessive, but for me, when I found Here My Dear, his record from 1978, which 
we'll get into uh, in great detail in episode three of this series, I became a hell of a lot more interested in him. And as far as David Ritz goes, it's also David Ritz's story, uh, as far as his way in, in truly being able to give himself over completely and entirely as a fan. Uh, here, my dear, is what did it for David. Here, my dear, is what did it for me. So let's, uh, <clears throat> let's kick off with a segment that I affectionately call the run-up. This is going to get us as quickly as possible with background information uh, that gets us to his very first release. So... Marvin was born Marvin Pence Gay Jr. on April 2nd, 1939 in Washington, D.C. Um, his dad was a church minister, uh, Marvin Gay Sr., and his mom, Alberta Gay. He had two sisters and a brother. Uh, he started singing in church when he was four. Gay and his family were part of a Pentecostal church known as the House of God. Uh, their teachings were taken from uh, Hebrew Pentecostalism and uh, really espoused very strict conduct. This kind of set up a schism in him that to me feels extremely redolent of Sly Stone and the background of his family uh, in a sense that uh, if you're going to sample the goods that lead you to hell, you might as well just taste it all because it's too late to turn back now. So, Gay developed uh, an early love of singing and was encouraged uh, to pursue a career in music after he performed in a school play when he was 11, singing Mario Lanza's Be My Love. Um, he, unfortunately, at home, had a very brutal home life, um, consisting of his dad brutally whipping him uh, for practically any shortcoming, apparently. Um, he felt, looking back, that had his mother not consoled him and, uh, you know, had his back and encouraged him singing, that he would have committed suicide. Uh, his sister later explained that Gay was beaten frequently from age seven well into the teenage years. <clears throat> um, talking to David Ritz years later, uh, Marvin said, it wasn't simply that my father beat me, though that was bad enough. By the time I was 12, there wasn't an inch on my body that hadn't been bruised and beaten by him. Okay, so after he came back from the Air Force, uh, Gay and his good friend Reese Palmer formed a vocal quartet called the Marquis. Uh, they performed in the D.C. area and soon began working with Bo Diddley. So their sole single was called Wyatt Earp. Uh, it was co-written by Bo Diddley. It did not chart, and the group was soon dropped from the label. During this period is when Marvin began composing music. Uh, under Harvey Fuqua's direction, the group changed its name to Harvey and the New Moon Glows and relocated to Chicago. They recorded a bunch of sides for chess in 1959, including the song Mama Lucy, which was Gay's first lead vocal recording. That's 1959. That's where things kind of kick off. So the Moonglows found work as session singers for more established acts like Chuck Berry. Uh, back in the USA and Almost Grown, that is, that's the group in the background singing back up for Chuck Berry. In 1960, the group broke up. Marvin relocates to Detroit with Harvey Fuqua, which is where he finds himself performing Mr. Sandman at Motown CEO Barry Gordy's annual Christmas party uh, where Marvin's playing piano and singing. Gordy's pretty impressed and signs him to Motown that next month. 
Gay was then assigned to uh, Motown's Tamla label, uh, which is where his home would be for the next 20 years. In the meantime, Marvin meets and falls in love with one of uh, Barry's sisters, Anna, Anna Gordy, and the couple uh, begins dating during the spring of 1961, and they're married within one year. So before the release of his first single, uh, Marvin actually changes the spelling of his surname and adds an E. Uh, His original name is G-A-Y. And by the way, this is the same thing that Sam Cooke did, but David Ritz uh, wrote that uh, Gay did this to silence rumors of his sexuality and also to put more distance between him and his dad. Phase one. The Endless Supper Club Preamble, 1959 to 1966. So initially, Marvin pursues a career as a performer of jazz music and standards. This is this kind of has nothing to do with the Marvin that most people know and love. Um, he had no desire initially to become an R&B performer. His very first single, Let Your Conscience Be Your Guide, comes out in May 1961, and his debut record, follows up one month later. So before we uh, proceed, I would like for the Dean of Rock Critics to take the stage for a brief moment with an undeniably pithy summation of Gay's career and output through the 60s. So according to Robert Criscow, Gay was so rhythmically and dynamically astute that his album sustained, even during his phase as a Motown matinee idol. And so we begin with 1961's The Soulful Moods of Marvin Gaye. Uh, This is his first record. It's also, um, coincidentally, the second long player album released by Motown. The first is High Were the Miracles. Great titles, these. Uh, So, you know, initially, it's well documented. Just like Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye really kind of struggled to find his identity in 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 the music business. This goes on for quite some time. So, you know, he loves... All different sorts of music from early rock and roll, blues, jazz, doo-wop. And uh, really what he was seeking to do was mix the styles of Nat King Cole, Billy Eckstein, Little Willie John, and Jesse Belden. So the label saw themselves as recording R&B music for teens. Marvin, who admired Nat King Cole, Ray Charles, etc., wanted to record more adult music, including jazz and pop standards. Um, you know, when Marvin was growing up, he was told not to dance. Uh, you know, the physicality, the sexuality of dancing, uh, that was kind of a no-no for him. <clears throat> so he wanted to sit on a stool and croon rather than shake my ass on stage, quote-unquote, saying that his voice was what people paid attention to, not his dancing. So after a hell of a lot of pushing and shoving, Uh, Gay was finally able to record an album of jazz standards with a compromise that he'd record a couple of songs with an R&B feel. Um, Not much attention was given this record when it came out. Um, Let Your Conscience Be Your Guide did not become a major hit, but it was a regional hit in the Midwest and on the West Coast. Um, You know, after this record came out, uh, through the 60s, you know, Marvin's jazz ambitions continued unabated. Uh, He recorded three more albums with jazz covers, none of which resonated well with audiences used to his, you know, grittier R&B work during the 60s. It just kind of fell on deaf ears. This record, the only song that I would consider to be an excellent song would be the single, Let Your Conscience Be Your Guide, written by Barry Gordy and really a surprisingly excellent 
early blues supper club classic. Uh, aside from, from that track, there's four other tunes worthy of inclusion on the playlist with really terrific supper club jazz elegance to them, including I'm Afraid the Masquerade is Over, Easy Living, How Deep is the Ocean, How High is the Sky, and You Don't Know What Love Is. And this is not the crowning pinnacle of his work uh, at the label. The material I find is pulled off most successfully here is the snare brush torch song from the Edge of Nowhere stuff. I actually like this style of his, and I think it, it, it works far better, at least to my ears, than I'd been led to believe it would. At its best, this stuff is haunting and uncharacteristic of what would follow. I give it three stars. January 1963, that stubborn kind of fellow comes out. Uh, so this is kind of where things really start to kick in for him. Um, you know, Gay still didn't want an R&B career, um, still wasn't interested, uh, but after Please Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes, uh, which had a younger sound that attracted pop audiences and became Motown's first number one single, uh, Gordy went after a much younger R&B sound. And although Marvin initially wasn't interested in, in going along with it, Marvin changed his mind and um, began composing songs with Mickey Stevenson and was determined to get a leg up over at Motown. The second single, Stubborn Kind of Fellow, was the first charted single for Marvin, which reached number eight R&B and number 46 pop in late 62. The two other singles that were that came off the record, Hitchhike and Pride and Joy, would do even better. Hitchhike um, got up to number 30 and Pride and Joy number 10. So that's his first top 10 pop single and his first R&B single to reach the top five, which peaked at number two. And another crucial component of this one is that some of these tunes would be covered by groups like The Stones and The Who in an early incarnation. Let's talk about the record. Side one is awesome. Stubborn Kind of Fellow kicks things off. It's Pimple Simple and it put Marv on the map. Then you have Pride and Joy. The song was also the third straight and final single to include Martha and the Vandellas and background vocals uh, just weeks before Heatwave made them one of the bigger acts there. Next up was is on the record is Hitchhike. Hitchhike is awesome. Love that song. It's one of my favorites of the early hits, if not the favorite. Um, the low swooping honk of the sax, the stop-start chorus rhythm, and that flute solo, all of it's classic. The Velvet Underground song, There She Goes Again, is, uh, let's, let's not say it's based on Hitchhike, let's say it's a very strong pastiche of the way that, that this song feels. Then the problem we have, and this is a problem that uh, you'll find kind of plagues not just his career, but a lot of the careers of artists in the 60s, were releasing uh, records in a time when LPs were not really the main focus. Side B sucks. <clears throat> I mean, for him it sucks, let's just say. This record is definitely an improvement on the debut in some ways and a regression in others. The first side bears the template of the new gay pop sound, loaded with hits from singles that were released around that time. Side two is more of a hedged bet, material that just wasn't quite as inspired just a series of workmanlike filler style tracks. But overall, even the filler is kind of strong, and that first side is truly a doozy. I give this three and a half stars. Also in September 63, we have uh, the Can I Get a Witness single. Holy fuck, is this a great song. And this is a Holland Dozier Holland song. Uh, Marvin recorded the song in one take. 
which is very impressive. Holland would later call Marvin the most versatile vocalist I ever worked with. This song's classic, stuffed to the gills with gospel soul moves, impossible not to shake it to it. I give it four and a half stars. September 63 also sees the release of Marvin Gaye recorded live on stage. Um, Gaye was accompanied through the album by Martha and the Vandellas. He recorded another live album in the 1960s, the shelved Marvin Gaye at the Copa. As you all know, you're well attuned to the rules and regulations of discography. We don't really go in depth on the live albums. February 1964, you're a wonderful one. A really good single. Um, this was again written by Holland Dozier Holland. Um, it charted at number 15 on Billboard. You got the Supremes on background vocals. I don't think it's one of his top tier efforts, uh, but it's a really strong, serviceable boogie woogie twist on R&B. I give it three and a half stars. April 1st, 1964, When I'm Alone I Cry. This is one of a bunch of uh, different attempts by Gay and Motown to make his name as a jazz vocalist. Um, this one includes 10 pop and jazz standards. David Ritz says his ballad style remained self-conscious and restrained. The results were flat. So after this was unsuccessful when it was released, Marvin finally gave in to pressure to record more R&B and soul stuff. This record feels several rungs less remarkable than his solo debut's more intimate vibe three years back. This time out, there's a strong focus on dense orchestration, but the songs themselves are held at something of an admired distance, which does no one any favors. I give this one two and a half stars. So <clears throat> then, and you can tell how bunched together these releases are. Uh, that was on April 1st of 64, and two weeks later, his first duet album comes out. It's with Mary Wells. It's called Together. Gay was, you know, blatantly hitching his star to Mary Wells, who at this point is an established star. 1964 is my guy. And they're singing mostly standards and show tunes in the hopes that he'd benefit from some exposure. So uh, this is... This is Marvin's first charted album. It peaked at number 42 on the Billboard chart and spawned two top 20 singles, Once Upon a Time and What's the Matter with You, Baby. Uh, very quickly after the release of the record, Mary Wells, who got a lot of bad advice from her former husband and manager, uh, left Motown when she reached 21 years old. The label had to find another duet partner for Gay and wound up enlisting Kim Weston for one record um, and then finally Tammy Terrell. But Mary Wells is kind of the least auspicious duet partner for him. This record, honestly, it feels kind of perfunctory, as if Marvin had trouble getting with the idea that he'd have to ride into the public eye in a lady's time. Maybe I'm reading into it, but he sounds a hell of a lot less committed here than he does on his white glove Sophisto jazz LPs. That being said, this is the second album released in only the first half of April. He was to truly double down on the duets formula within a couple of years, and man, did he ride that idea home. Um, really, the only song that, uh, that I'm gonna be plucking uh, from this uh, for the playlist is gonna be Once Upon a Time, which has an almost Bacharach level sophista pop, uh, kind of a, a thing replete with vibe solo. I'll give the record as a whole, though, two and a half stars. November 64, Hello Broadway. 
this is an album of standards and Broadway material. Um, this is basically um, showcasing more of, of Marvin's personal desire to be a Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra-style crooner. And this record, I, I have almost no use for whatsoever, personally. Uh, swaying under the moonlight type shit, a total miscalculation by the artist. You know, it's really funny how it's typically the record company imposing Caucasian-y restrictions like this on their artists. But a lot less often do you see this type of self-straightjacketing and what appears to be an unclear reflection in the mirror of his own musical soul. You know, this is Marvin wanting to do things that, you know, what we know about retrospectively is that this is kind of like Michael Jordan playing baseball. The album sports overly florid Jiminy Cricket type orchestration, and that shit does this man no favors whatsoever. Uh, obviously, it's competently assembled, but this slab of wax is graded on a curve, and I give it two stars. January 1965 sees the release of How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. Uh, the title track, of course, uh, enormously successful. At the time, it was his best-selling single and was, of course, covered by James Taylor in 1975, also to great success. Other hits on the record include Try It Baby, uh, which has The Temptations on it, and Baby Don't You Do It. Let's talk about this record. Uh, we kick off side one with You're a Wonderful One. Uh, yesterday's Papers, uh, since it had already been released, but still a great song. How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, a Holland Dozier Holland masterpiece. Uh, the relaxed swing of the track, along with the super easygoing melody, makes this one the best song of his career thus far, as far as I'm concerned. It peaked at number six in January 65 on the pop charts and at number three on the R&B charts. Try It Baby is next, another great one written by Barry Gordy, a sweet, sweet slow blues, one of Gordy's all-timer deep cuts. Then comes Baby Don't You Do It, another Holland Dozier Holland masterpiece, um, and actually initially written and intended for the Supremes, but eventually reassigned to gay. I would say, I would categorize this as more of a frantic rave up than a regular song as such. And man, is it intense. Let's also talk about uh, its exhumation as a rock and roll standard in the early 70s. The Who covered it in 1971, and the band famously covered it in 1972. Um, out of nowhere, this becomes, it goes from a, being a, a deep cut for Marvin to being uh, like, you know, I don't know, this is the go-to track for whatever reason. Next up, Need Your Love and Want You Back. Uh, Barrel House R&B Swing. It's hysterical to me that this represents something of a selling out to gay. It's just such a natural, obvious direction for him. Uh, next up is One of These Days. Smart swinging R&B with just the right dash of pop smarts. Then we have two awesome songs. No Good Without You, a desperate deep cut ballad, one of my favorites on the record, and Stepping Closer to Your Heart, which is an organ forward ballad with killer horn charts. Uh, another great one, the record kind of peters out a little bit from there. Me and My Lonely Room is a great soul-bearing ballad. Um, this, to me is his first all-out great record. It features a staggering amount of great singles and album tracks. It's the first one without filler, and it feels like something birthed from his soul. It's so odd that this is his idea of selling out, while the Broadway crap is his idea of artistic integrity. Welcome to Bizarro Universe. After four years of cherry pickings, finally, here's where you start. I'll give it four stars. 
1965. That sees the release of Pretty Little Baby, uh, which is a single, also known as Purple Snowflakes. Um, This was released on June 18, 1965, never included on an LP by Marvin, and it's a bit of an anomaly in the trajectory of his career. Gay wound up singing and recording Purple Snowflakes in 1964, just before Pretty Little Baby, though the Christmas jingle wasn't released for a few decades. I'll give this four and a half stars. I love it. November 1965, a tribute to the great Nat King Cole. As it sounds, this is a tribute LP dedicated to uh, Marvin's idol, who had died of lung cancer earlier that year. Of course, what is meaningful to Marvin falls deftly on my ears. Um, You know, dude had to learn lessons over and over again to understand the unavoidable truth of his situation. This easy listening pap was not playing to his strengths. I docked Marvin a half star for not being self-aware enough to have recognized where his bread was going to be buttered by now. I give this one and a half stars. I'm not a fan of this. May 1966, Moods of Marvin Gaye. The plan of the record was to establish Marvin as a strong albums-oriented artist, as well as a hit maker. He'd begun work on a standards album around this time, um, but uh, sessions were not successful. Uh, Six songs from this record were released as singles, and impressively, all of them reached the top 40 on the R&B singles chart. And four of them reached the top 40 on the pop charts. But we start off with I'll Be Dug On, which has high levels of laid back cool here and is a great pop melody. Little Darling, I Need You, Holland Dozier Holland. Sounds a little too close to how sweet it is for comfort for, for this nerdy fuckface. But it's still a good, solid ripoff. And it's definitely got the classic exuberance of mid-60s HDH. Take This Heart of Mine. This one feels a bit more frantic, like R&B with just a bump of meth. Uh, actually, the, la- the last two songs on the first side are amazing. One More Heartache, uh, the third release and third consecutive top 40 single from the record, uh, and was produced with a similar sound to Ain't That Peculiar, a sick lead guitar figure, best riff on the album, and just a killer commanding all-timer lead. Uh, Ain't That Peculiar is another great one. It's Marvin's second... Uh, U.S. Million Selling 45. This song swings like crazy. It's just so fucking good. This has to be my favorite early track of his. It's just got a ludicrous amount of groove, just endless. Now, as far as side two goes, that's where things kind of trail off. Um, Nightlife is the only song I'm going to recommend for something that really pops out at you. Nightlife is super soulful blues jazz by way of Nolens. It's a, this is a definite case of great singles on side one and stuffed to the brim with filler on side two. An all-too-common situation back then. Side two was the shit that would leak out of HDH's pens as they nodded out over blank sheets of paper deep, deep into the night. Some would say stylistically varied. I'd say inconsistent. Three and a half stars. All right, phase two, Lady Luck, 1964 to 1969. August 1966, we have the next duets album. His next duets partner was Kim Weston, the record Take Two. So this was, uh, the record was titled after uh, the most successful track on it, the top five R&B, top 20 pop hit, It Takes Two. Also, there was a mod- another modest hit on the record, What Good Am I Without You? 
Uh, right after this record was released, Kim Weston left Motown in a dispute over royalties. Of course, we're seeing a pattern by this point. His duets partners are just falling by the wayside as soon as he's done working with them. This is kind of a hodgepodge, this one. Uh, there really are three songs that, um, that I would really recommend here. Track one, side one, it takes two. I mean, that's a perfect poppy R&B tune, a totally classic single. It became Gay's most successful duet single to date. That's the only just out and out classic on the record. Two other good songs that are gonna be on the playlist. It's got to be a miracle, this thing called Love. An awesome, massively dramatic back and forth uh, that seems like, it seems like surely this, this one could have been a hit. And What Good Am I Without You? Released as a single in late 64, uh, this one became the first duet Marvin and Kim recorded. And as far as uh, the rest of the record, it is what it is. These duo records feel like a real hodgepodge of sluiced material from the Motown casket. Some of it's top shelf, but very little, frankly. 1960s album filler gluts this one for the most part, with a predictably supper club-like and uninteresting, practically useless side two, I give it two and a half stars. 1967 brings another duets record, uh, this one with Tammy Terrell called United. United spawned two top 10 singles, uh, Your Precious Love, If I Could Build My Whole World Around You, plus the top 20 single, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and If This World Were Mine. Right from the get-go, we are on stronger ground here as far as you know the worth of this record. Ain't No Mountain High Enough is a great song, written by um, Nicholas Ashford and Valerie Simpson prior to joining Motown. Everybody knows this song, and for good reason. Uh, there's a couple other uh, Stone Cold classics on the record. Your Precious Love is one of them. I love whatever tracks Marvin touches that have a lithe, bluesy swing to them. This one's a perfect example. It just has such an ease with itself. This one has a touch of magic about it. It's a solo Marvin creation that's most definitely playing to underused, almost hypnagogic-vibed strengths. It's pretty different, and I wish there were more like it. Uh, Give a Little Love is another good one. Um, Buttercup Sweet Old Fashioned Concoction. The only other song I'd really recommend that really shoots out of the pack here is If I Could Build My Whole World Around You. Uh, the Tammy Terrell partnership was definitely a third times the charm type situation. The material was of a higher caliber and sparks seemed to ignite more fully than with Mary or Kim. Three classics and a couple other solid keepers tossed in rates this one slightly higher than the previous collab records. I'll give it three and a half stars. In October 1967, uh, Marvin and Tammy had an engagement at Hampton Sydney College and Tammy Terrell collapsed into Marvin's arms. She was later diagnosed at the end of the year with having a brain tumor. Uh, a lot of people speculate that her, her illness and her subsequent death two and a half years later really affected Gay's performances uh, to the extent that uh, it transformed him from being a soul stylist in the same way, you know, uh, that his idol, Sam Cooke, had been into a more gospel-influenced soul vocalist who sounded more uh, along the lines of, you know, Otis Redding, James Brown, and David Ruffin. Uh, Motown brings Marvin back to the studio in the beginning of 67 to record a solo album. Um, Gay's vocals went through a transition during this period. Marvin's earlier collaborator, Norman Whitfield, and his pupil, Frank Wilson, began to write songs that they felt fit the singer's chaotic personal life. So instead of a disconnect, now things are starting to blend, and now 
I mean, what other way is he actually going to come into his own as an artist? So there's all kinds of stuff going on with Gay uh, in his personal life that, thank God, find uh, a home on record. His marriage to Anna Gordy was turbulent, um, really, really bumpy. Life on the road, um, you know, Gay had stage fright. Uh, and also his personal disagreements with Barry Gordy, uh, they're just starting to... Um, create lots of strain in his career. This kind of sets the stage of the, for the recording of what would become Marvin's biggest selling and signature single of his career, I Heard It Through the Grapevine. So Grapevine, you know, Norman Whitfield decides to force Marvin to raise his vocal register higher than what he was used to, which was a ploy that Norman Whitfield had already tried and tried successfully to uh, bring to bear on David Ruffin during the recording that Temptations hit, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. There were arguments during the, uh, the sessions for Grapevine, but ultimately Norman Whitfield was able to get what he wanted from Gay. When Whitfield presented Grapevine to Barry Gordy, uh, Whitfield was pretty shocked when Barry turned it down, sensing the song wasn't a hit and that, quote, it sucked. In response, Norman Whitfield records a different version of the song by Gladys Knight and the Pips in an attempt to, quote, out-funk Aretha Franklin's respect. So that version, released in September 67, became the biggest Motown hit to date. After the success of that version, Norman Whitfield was still determined to get Gay's version of the song released as a single. Uh, again, Barry refuses, but agrees to allow uh, Grapevine onto the record. Thus, in 1968, we have a record called In the Groove, and in parentheses, I heard it through the Grapevine. This is the first solo studio album that Gay had released in two years. Track one on the record is called You. And holy shit, is this amazing. It has these almost Arabic-like string swoops and woodwind fanfare, and it just carries one of the best songs from this era through into the soul heavens. This was the first single from the record. The urgency is on a whole different level here, and it's not just in the way he's pushing and pushing his voice, it's also the instrumental underpinning and the background vocals. Everything feels stepped up. Really, it signaled a change in Marvin's direction as he stepped away from the Sophisto jazz thing and into his destiny. Okay, so after You, Tear It On Down, another Ashford Simpson track, I would kind of classify this one as a cool sunshine pop variant on the usual gay template. Uh, another really good song next up, Frank Wilson's Chained. I Heard It Through the Grapevine is next, a perfect song. When we look at what's happening on side two, uh, the back half of the LP, uh, there's significant progress. It's it's a really good... Side B is really good. Loving You is sweeter than ever. Yet another connection to the band uh, who are friends of the pod. This version has a relaxed, white-gloved, sophisto swing to it. I still feel the struggle in the back half of this record. This release, thank God, marks a line in the sand of more stringent quality control that features more grit in the delivery, plus a smoother blend of material on display. There literally isn't a single stone-cold masterpiece at 33 RPM in the 60s for Gay, but at least we knew his destiny lay just around the corner. Pound for pound, this record outweighs the competition by a mile, and I give it four and a half stars. Next up is another duets LP, 1968's You're All I Need with Tammy Terrell. This one features three hit singles that are written by Ashford and Simpson. Ain't nothing like the real thing, You're All I Need to Get By and Keep On Loving Me, Honey. 
So as far as duet LPs go, this is a really strong one. Things kick off with Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, uh, number eight on the Billboard Hot 100, and number one on the Hot Soul Singles Chart, a terrific rousing ballad that's played at a strangely funereal tempo for as rousing as the message seemingly should be. Um, Next up is Keep On Loving Me Honey, written and produced by Ashford and Simpson again. Um, It was their third single pulled from the record. You're All I Need to Get By is next. This was apparently a difficult one for Tammy Terrell to sing. She was recovering from surgery um, on, on the brain tumor that eventually killed her. During moments in the recording, Marvin can be heard encouraging Tammy to sing her verses, um, and you can hear him ad-libbing Come On Tammy a whole bunch of times. Give In, You Just Can't Win, a great song. This one's just super intense, drony, and super soulful. One of the best Marvin deep cuts I've stumbled across, and just one of the most impassioned soul songs I've ever heard, really. Uh, Come On and See Me is awesome. Why was this not a big hit? This song's got sunshine and good vibes smeared across its face, and it's a real shame they never got it on the radio. And then the last great song on the record, That's How It Is Since You've Been Gone. Okay, this is more like it. This one is a four-on-the-floor stomper with blaring harpsichord and an insistent northern soul pounding, driving it forward. We got life-or-death stakes going on here, and most definitely it's all front and center this time. There's no mistaking it. They're playing it for keeps, and they seem to know they have this one more shot, and then probably that's it. They make it count. This record's magnificent and very, very sad. There's an unmistakable roiling intensity to almost all of it that somehow through a decade of recording, Marvin had never been able to bottle before. This is the very best of his duet LPs, and I give it four and a quarter stars. 1969 brings the release of another record called MPG. MPG is his best-selling album of the 1960s and becomes Gay's first solo album to reach the top 40 on the Billboard Pop Albums chart, where it peaks at number 33. It also becomes his first number one album on the Soul Albums chart. Three top 40 hits were released from the record, and... Um, we kicked things off with Too Busy Think About My Baby. Uh, this was the follow-up single to I Heard It Through the Grapevine, which, uh, you know, and again, this one's a um, Barrett-Strong, Norman Whitfield tune, um, along with Janie Bradford, a co-writer. Uh, this was a top five hit, his second biggest hit of the 60s after Grapevine. What an amazing single. For whatever reason, this one had slipped through the cracks for me. Don't know why, and I just wasn't at all familiar with it. Thank the good Lord up above for discography as it shines a bright, intense light down in my life, not just yours. That's the way Love Is is the third track on the record. This is his third consecutive million-selling solo hit after Grapevine and Too Busy Think About My Baby that was written by Whitfield and Barrett Strong. Norman Whitfield basically took an up-tempo Isley Brothers record and transformed it into a slowed-down psychedelic soul opus. I like the next one better, The End of Our Road, co-written by Roger Penzabine. As with the last two songs in Penzabine's trilogy for The Temptations, I Wish It Would Rain and I Could Never Love Another After Loving You. The End of Our Road talked about the demise of a couple's relationship, and there's real sentiment and real feeling behind the song's words. Uh, Because as those uh, in the know know, uh, Penzabine wrote the lyrics as personal statements to his wife, which publicized the pain of his own marriage falling apart. Uh, 
he really was unable to handle all the, the, the pain that was caused by his relationship with his wife. So he wrote these songs that drew from his real-life heartbreak, and after all three songs were completed and recorded, Penza being committed suicide. Uh, next up, a great song, Seek and You Shall Find, a grinding, yearning leap into the void, an amazing deep cut. Uh, now we're back in cherry-picking territory with this record. He had to have been getting very tired of these middling mishmash records by this point. I give it three stars. 1969, <clears throat> the final Tammy Terrell record, it's called Easy. This came out in September 1969. Um, one song, Good Love It Ain't Easy to Come By, was a hit single. This is a strange record because, you know, apparently by this point, Tammy Terrell, by all accounts, is very ill. So Marvin later claimed that as a result, most of the female vocals on this record were performed by Valerie Simpson, who was the co-songwriter and co-producer for the LP with Nicholas Ashford. Whether or not that's true, um, it's still kind of a bummer of a record because of that. Uh, there's a couple songs that I would like to, uh, you know, talk about. You know, really four songs that are worthy of being talked about here. Good Love and Ain't Easy to Come By is the first release off the record. I think the song is a pretty damn fine song and pretty intense, too. Um, then there's a, a sweet, easygoing version of California Soul, which is awesome. Um, then a whole bunch of songs that are not that great. Uh, what You Gave Me is um, is the next great song, recorded in the final throes of the Marvin Tammy duet recordings. Um, what You Gave Me became the second single from the record. And as with much of the record, there's debate over who sang with Gay. Is it Tammy, who was undergoing treatment for brain cancer, or is it co-writer Valerie Simpson? What You Gave Me is great horn-soaked soul, definitely ripe for the plucking from this casket of a record. Um, I Can't Believe You Love Me is the last great song on the record. You know, I, I, I only wish there was more Mysterioso-like uh, material in Gay's catalog, uh, like I Can't Believe You Love Me. This tune is amazing, and it stands alone. The, la the only other song I really want to talk about on the record, which is, I believe, a terrible song, is called The Onion Song. This is his first, you know, socially conscious song and is a very dry run for what's going on. Um, it was a single. Uh, it peaked at number 18 on the Soul Chart, number 50 on the Billboard Top 100. And really, uh, The Onion Song is kind of like if what's going on was shitty if it was mismatched musically with its message and hit you over the head with a message so heavy-handed that it fucking left skull fractures. It's honestly amazing he had social conscience left in him musically after this pathetic attempt. Uh, but, you know, it's super interesting because here he is, you know, for the very first time demonstrating to the record-buying public that he cares about what's going on out there. Uh, and, of course, uh, what would come from that um, you know, later in the 70s and 80s is incalculable. At this point, the record mainly feels like a cash-in in the context of, of Marvin's career. No matter whose side of the story you believe, it still counts as exploitative and indefensible. They squeezed one more record from Tammy as she was dying. I give this two stars. 
So according to David Ritz, Anna Gordy had been physically and verbally abusive to Marvin. Marvin attempted suicide at least three times in his life. The first went down at this time in 1969 when he was holed up in a Detroit apartment. He was despondent from his failing marriage at the time and uh, he, he wanted to shoot himself with a handgun. Uh, Pops, Barry Gordy's dad, eventually stopped this attempt. So after a period of depression, Marvin seeks out a position on a professional football team, the Detroit Lions. The Lions, of course, declined Marvin's advances. And here's where, at the bottom of the barrel and all fucked up over his failing marriage, Tammy Terrell's death, and the demons who'd by this point come to collect their due, that Marvin assembled the jigsaw puzzle pieces necessary to dominate the 1970s music scene. You're not going to want to miss a single second of this. Thank you so much for listening. See you from Marvin Gaye, Part 2, 1970 to 1975, on the next episode of Discography. Discography.